0: Welcome to the BrainStem Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Hilary Marusak, produced by Amonpreet Vogel, Manmich Vogel, and Gabby Merrimag. Welcome to our anxiety, fear, and afraid episode, is what we're calling it. I am very delighted to have my special guest today, Dr. Arash Javanbacht, who is one of my colleagues and also an expert in fear and anxiety and stress and trauma. Um, he's a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist here at Wayne State University. But I will let you, Arash, introduce yourself.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm specialized in anxiety and trauma. Uh, most of my work in the clinic is with uh, people who have seen the worst of what humans experience, whether it's survivors of torture, human trafficking, refugees, first responders, civilians with trauma experience, and of course I do some research. Uh, mostly focus on what trauma does to human brain and body and how we can uh, mitigate those uh, impacts. Uh, ranging from looking at the longitudinal impact of uh, trauma exposure in refugee children and their parents and um, in the body, in the brain, looking at inflammation, looking at the genetic changes. We use some very cool augmented reality technology, basically Iron Man uh, goggles, you wear them on, (laughs) and other humans come in and interact with you using it mostly in a project we are working with first responders.
0: There. Yeah, lots to cover today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We need to have you on for all of those different topics, I know. Um, so this is timely. This is coming out on Halloween. So the the topic of fear and um, anxiety is very relevant but also relevant for some of the the recent kind of issues that are going on in society. So maybe we'll touch on some of that work that you're involved in. But you've recently had a book come out called Afraid. So I want to start with that just to, uh Asking you what prompted you to write the book. What was that process like for you?
1: Thank you so much. Uh, So I'm very excited about this book. Uh, One thing that I didn't mention that I do a lot is public education and public scholarly work. So basically bringing knowledge from science to the public sphere. Uh, one of the challenges we have is that there's a lot of uh, pseudoscience and misinformation out there about a lot of these areas that we work uh, on. I'm, I've been looking at the books that are out there in this field. <clears throat> They're books that somebody had a condition and then they decided to write a book about that condition, how people can treat themselves. Not a lot of professionals are involved in the field. Mm -hmm. And also through this work, I've found that it can be very impactful, Mm -hmm. right? You and I do tons of research and write papers that are read by a limited number of scientists in our Mm -hmm. field, but the public is not informed by it. So we can reach to tens of thousands, up to millions of people letting them know what's happening in this realm. And, of course, as a psychiatrist in the clinic, on a day-to-day basis, I educate my patients about Mm -hmm. what is the purpose of fear, anxiety, how they work in us, how we can reduce them, how we can manage them, how we can use them, what are the lifestyle changes that can help us. And at some point, I decided that, well, I can share all this knowledge, what I had written before in small, let's say, public scholarly uh, pieces on the media, Or I'd done interviews or talked to the patients about writing in a book. So I pitched the book to publishers, and then I started writing. Uh, The mistake I made was I didn't take a sabbatical. So this book was written (laughs) over the course of the year at nights and over the weekends. Uh, And I learned a lot through the process, because one thing is you want to make science and research relevant to Mm -hmm. the public. And the book was finished, actually, in... uh, I was getting close to my deadline. Mm-hmm. and uh, Like
0: most writers, I feel like. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I had to wrap it up. And I thought like uh, most other books, you tell the publisher that I need six more months, and mm-hmm. then they do it. And they said, no, we want this to come out uh, in the fall. Yeah. So I had a few weeks, and I decided to travel to Tucson, Arizona, sit next to the mountains <laughs> in this old resort where John Wayne used to go when he was filming. <laughs> And sat there and I basically rewrote half of the book in, over the course of two weeks and cut out about a third of the book, mm-hmm. which I found not very directly useful to people, sure. right? Because I don't want to waste people's time. Yeah, I want it to be relevant.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's fantastic. I'm so excited to, to get this out and see what people think about it. Um, so we'll share more information about the book uh, in the bio of the podcast. But I think this is something we talk about a lot as um, you know, the Brainstorm podcast, our goal is really to, like you said, educate the public about uh, science because most science, at least in the States, is funded by the US government. So taxpayer dollars. So mm-hmm. really the general public should be the ones who are understanding and being the, the beneficiaries of, of scientific advancement so that's why i love the work that you're doing you know whether you're, you're on radio shows or news or you're writing a book or even just sharing that with kind of psychoeducation with your par- with your patients so thank you so much for the work that you do you mentioned the definition of fear is where you usually start with patients so can you tell us how you think of fear what is the definition?
1: So, and that's a very good question because we have a lot of diverse approaches and understandings of what's fear, what's anxiety, what's trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So there's the sphere of public and in the science. And uh, also, in historically, in our scientific work and clinical work, we have seen fear and anxiety as annoying, redundant things that should be eradicated, mm-hmm. like the appendix that gets infected and we have to remove it and it has no purpose. Mm-hmm. But and to understand fear and anxiety, you know better than me as a neuroscientist. We look at animals, rats' brains, to understand about the human brain how fear works in human brain. Which means it is a very primitive system. So I could argue probably that fear is as old as biology. Mm-hmm. And it is there, it has been instilled deeply in all of us in all biological, physical, and psychic aspects, psychological aspects of our existence with one purpose, to protect us against annihilation or serious damage or loss. Mm -hmm. So I see fear as a system and mechanism and reaction and response, mostly reaction. Mm -hmm. It's not proactive. Which is there to protect us, detect danger, and then protect us against the danger. And that danger is, uh, should be seen in the context of where we evolved, mm-hmm. right? Let's say I was coming on this podcast and I was nervous and I was anxious because, I don't know, let's say I have fear of public speaking or talking to people. My heart would be pounding in my chest, and Mm -hmm. my breathing would be difficult. Why is that? Why is the system that is instilled in us to protect us, why is my closest friend now being my enemy? Mm -hmm. The answer is that it's not my enemy. The thing is, in the context it evolved, the dangers were very different or the perceived threats were very different than what they are now. Back there and then, what were the dangers? If I was among my tribe mates and I was talking to them, they didn't like me, chances were high in a matter of minutes, one of us would be injured or killed or had to run away. So the fight and flight system comes in Mm -hmm. to pump the blood everywhere it has to go and focus my attention on danger so I can protect myself. So it's a system which is confused in the modern life Mm -hmm. because majority of the perceived threats, and I keep saying perceived because threat, there's an objective threat and then there's a perceived threat. Majority of perceived threats in our modern life are abstract, a lot more abstract. Mm-hmm. Let's say a predator attacking you. I mean, if a grizzly bear is in this room, you and I would have the same reaction to it. Mm -hmm. But what's the threat of uh, an infection that is coming from, let's say, China and then spreading to Europe and then spreading to the east of Mm -hmm. the country? These are things that the fear system gets confused
0: about. Right, because it hasn't experienced that before in its evolutionary past. I think that's really interesting. You've written a ton about that kind of mismatch between like modern-day fear systems and how we kind of evolved as humans. And I think it's so interesting to... To uh, know that you're kind of pointing out the positive potential side of fear as well—that there it has some utility. Can you speak more about kind of the positive side of fear that we don't often recognize?
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, <clears throat> per definition, its job is to protect us in situations that can be seriously dangerous.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's say a big object rapidly starts approaching me. Mm-hmm. I do not have time to sit there and think about the philosophical reasons the driver is driving so fast and coming towards me. <laughs> the animal inside of me just grabs me and pulls me out of the way. Right. So the fear secretory is there. It's basically a warning system. Mm-hmm. This warning system and, and that caveman, cavewoman that is inside of us, which is the fear system, a lot of times sees it well, or even better than, us, especially when it comes to situations which are relevant to what it trained for, mm-hmm. right, or what it evolved for. It's like
0: I've seen this before. Here's what I should be doing to react.
1: Absolutely. And uh, the parallel I make is a lot of times when you and I are sleeping and dreaming,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we are just there while someone else is running the show. Mm-hmm. When we are awake, that someone else, something else, the caveman, caveman, primitive brain, mind. Is just watching the show that we are running. So mm-hmm. with right now with me, that caveman is here, looking at everything that's happening in this room, yeah. confused a little bit. So one thing to so go back to your questions. Uh, one thing is fear does is it's a warning, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important to pay attention to it. I always say fear is sometimes the pen in the wrong chair that we are sitting us on.
2: Mm-hmm. It means
1: that we have to fix the chair or move off of the chair. I've had uh, let's say. Someone who is in an abuse, in, in in clinical work, most of the times you're working on reducing fear and anxiety mm-hmm. or eradicating it. Mm-hmm. I mean, although it's not possible, but uh, let's say uh, someone is in a highly abusive relationship mm-hmm. and they have anxiety. That would be dumb for me to want to eradicate that anxiety because that's right. what pro- what is protecting them, Right. right. If you're walking on the street and someone approaches you with a gun or with a knife, these are the these mm-hmm. are more tangible situations, concrete situations that fear helps us. But then there are parts of more abstract anxieties that help us move away. Basically, it cultivates the energy, right? Fear is one of those most powerful reactions we have in cultivating our whole mental and physical energy mm-hmm. and attention, grabbing your attention, bringing it to what matters. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it does help us and save us. Let's say you are in a, somebody is in a like a, not physically abusive, but unhappy relationship that is stealing from their future, stealing from their career, stealing from uh, their offspring in the future. Mm -hmm. And the anxieties that are related to that difficult situation and condition is a wake-up call that, hey, how about this energy moves you away and moves you out of this relationship or make you fix it? Or let's say a lot of people who go to therapy, what do they go? They go because of this energy, this mm-hmm. pain that pulls them, and now I have to make some, do something and change something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes somebody is stuck in a terrible job that they don't like, and the anxieties of it can help them move away. And sometimes you can cultivate the anxiety yourself or utilize it or – I mean, you and I talk in science about optimal level of arousal, mm-hmm. right? Dave, for a person to learn, for an animal also to learn, we need an optimal level of anxiety.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I'm too bored and I came here to this uh, conversation, <laughs> I wouldn't be prepared. I wouldn't be like, I didn't reviewed some of the thoughts that we wanted to share with each other. And I wouldn't probably be fully here. Mm-hmm. But if I'm terrified also, you know they make the amygdala will bypass all the logical processing systems and I will not be able to focus pa- and pay attention to our conversation because my attention mm-hmm. is too much focused on what could go wrong. Right. So that optimal level of arousal is something that we can achieve mm-hmm. and we can actually induce and we can trigger, meaning that I remind, let's say I have an exam and I'm not studying well mm-hmm. enough, and then I remind myself of the possible negative consequences. Mm-hmm. That helps me be, motivate me enough to start moving and changing things. Mm-hmm. Of course, fear can also be used in, uh, <clears throat> in anxiety, in making us better and stronger. Mm-hmm. When you're scared of some things, if you use that anxiety in a way that you go and learn skills to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say during my school, medical school, uh, there were times that I had to be on myself in the emergency room, and I'm a trainee uh, during residency. It's terrifying, you just I'm started. Sure. <laughs> and then that motivates you to learn more and more and more pay more attention because my next call i want to be more ready and more uh uh, skilled to deal with those situations. So, you have to have so some it has level of anxiety, about
0: yeah, it. yeah. And you talk a lot in your book about harnessing the power of fear and anxiety, and and I think that was a really great demonstration of that. And maybe we can return to some of those uh, tips you might have for people later on. But um, I want to ask because it's Halloween season. You know, we always think about like Halloween, scary movies. People love to go to haunted houses. They like roller coasters. So people like to be afraid. Why is that?
1: And isn't that fun that uh, interesting <laughs> that people come pay me to treat their fear and anxiety right then they go pay at a haunted house to be scared by the people in the haunted right. house right so and and this was actually one of the coolest and more fun most fun parts of the book that i was working on uh haunt my nerves why would love to be scared that's the name of the chapter mm-hmm. and I have several uh, evidences and theories. Uh, One is, you know better than me, there's so much overlap between the brain secretory of fear and thrill and excitement. Mm -hmm. Norepinephrine, that works, dopamine. All of the and of course the physical sensations, when you do a thrilling experience, your heart is pounding, you're Mm -hmm. breathing heavily, your body's on alert, muscles are ready, and that's what happens in the fear. So I think one of the reasons we do that and we enjoy scary, uh, uh, let's say movies, or haunted houses, or uh, uh, experiences, is that we rile up the animal, we (laughs) excite the system, Mm -hmm. but we know we are in charge and in control. Let's say your dog sometimes sees a wolf howling on TV and gets riled up and cannot differentiate that dog or wolf on TV than, let's say, a wolf, uh, a dog which is uh, outside. Mm -hmm. There's that inside of us. So you see it and part of you believes it mm-hmm. part of you let's say someone with a, something looking like a knife is uh, chasing you mm-hmm. in a haunted house versus on the streets mm-hmm. your reaction is different so part of you you and i know we put a person in the scanner mm-hmm. And they are sleepy and bored, and you show them a picture of a scared person or a scary f- photo, and they make the fires up. The mm-hmm. fear brain fires up, even though the person doesn't know. So when you do those activities, you excite the animal, you rile up the animal, and then you enjoy the ride. Yeah. But there are also a lot of other uh, uses here. Uh, for example, it's a very mindful experience. Mm-hmm. When you're watching a horror movie for a couple of hours, you're not thinking about the problems you have in life. So, That's a good and point. You know, we know mindfulness helps a lot with reducing anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also <clears throat> gives us a sense of control, especially for people who are anxious. It's it's paradoxical that some people who are more anxious they love to see horror movies, for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because now you're in control. Mm-hmm. You have the remote next with you, so you can stop and you can start. And you your context processing brain is also there to tell you. Yeah, there's a lion here, but the context is a zoo. Mm -hmm. And then that reduces anxiety. And there should be a balance there. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things these activities can do, if you are thoughtful about them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is they bring fear to its perspective. Mm -hmm. When you are at an edge, on an edge, that you know if you fall, you're dead, Mm -hmm. which is real fear. Right. Then the anxiety of this paper not getting published or accepted or that <laughs> grant not going through or, mm-hmm. I don't know, other things that challenges that terrify us is put back in its perspective. That thing right. is not going to kill me. And I right. think this is an important f- function of these more realistic fears and thrills yeah. that can also be a practice for the fear system, the same way we practice our bodies.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. So next time you're at a haunted house, you are practicing and you're kind of pushing your your limits. I think that's really those are great theories, by the way. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. But I think the the idea of control makes a lot of sense to me, that you're kind of like putting yourself in this test. You know you're going to be stressed, but you know that everything is okay and that it's just, it's not real or that you can, you can basically handle it. You will survive. So I also think about exercise because exercise is kind of stressing your body. Mm-hmm. Like all those same things happen. Your heart rate elevates. You know, if you were to look at all of your kind of biometrics, you would probably think you were dying. Like something... <laughs> terribly wrong but exercise is kind of a controlled stressor that ends up being really good for you and a lot of people do feel that sense of calm afterwards so there is some sort of like reinforcing mean to do that so I don't know if you thought of exercise in the same way or is, or is like a different type of stressor just absolutely. curious
1: absolutely so First of all, exercise is an exposure therapy to physical symptoms of anxiety, right? Yeah. But beyond that, so meaning, sorry,
0: like the heart racing, like absolutely. physiologically aroused. Okay. Yeah.
1: So you feel more comfortable with those symptoms, sure. right? Because sometimes anxiety, especially when it comes to panic, it's because of what's happening in the body. Right. And the brain perceives that we are in a difficult, dangerous mm-hmm. situation. Of course, when you regularly work out, your baseline heart rate is lower. So it signals a calm and internal environment to your brain on a steady and constant state. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, biologically, you and I were not designed to sit at a desk and lay on a couch <laughs> all day long. Right. Right? Right. So, and why do we do exercise? Because we want to kind of replicate what this body was designed to do. Mm -hmm. And that makes it more healthy. So you work out, you put stress in this uh, physical system, which replicates what it used to like. We used to walk a lot back in the time. We had the physical things that we had to do during the time that we evolved. Mm -hmm. Same way, I think, these kind of scary activities, thrilling activities, are an exercise for a fear system which is not getting what it needs to get on a mm-hmm. regular basis. Uh, we talked about this ape being so confused in the anxieties of real, normal, like civilized life, which don't associate with what it was evolved to Right,
0: do. We're too cushy.
1: Yeah, so when we do thrilling activities, when you do expose ourselves to some levels of controlled fear and anxiety, mm-hmm. that kind of could be an exercise to and system. That might yeah. be the reason after that mule ride for a few days I didn't feel anxious. <laughs>
0: That's a great point. Yeah, I always think of fear as like exciting fear too. Like there is some sort of like thrill to it, which is so counterintuitive. The other thing I was thinking about earlier on when you were talking about um, the importance of fear is that there have been studies, and I'm sure you're aware of them, where people like lack a functional amygdala. And you brought up the amygdala as like your fear center in the brain. It does much more, but for Mm -hmm. you know this conversation, we can think of it as like that. And people who lack that amygdala, they can actually get into trouble because they can you know approach venomous snakes and do things that would actually cause them bodily harm so it's just a really interesting concept that that, that it is positive and adaptive to have this this fear circuitry
1: absolutely the parallel is the fear uh, the pain system right yeah. if you're unable to experience pain you will end up with a lot of wounds and bruises That's and a burns. Great point.
0: you'll keep your hand down on that stove unnecessarily yeah, yeah. yeah. you talk um, a little bit about fear and courage and I always think of you know, I don't know if they're urban myths. I'm sure this has happened a couple times, but moms who have, you know, a kid trapped under the car and they actually like lift a whole BMW. And I think there's some cases of that. So mm-hmm. fear can cause courage and strength. What What's up with that?
1: <laughs> so actually that chapter, uh, Courage is Not Lack of Fear, Absence of Fear, mm-hmm. was one of the chapters I had to work a lot harder on because... Yeah. I didn't know much, and there wasn't much out there, so I had to do a lot of research. So what Mm -hmm. we see as a courageous action. So courage is an action, right? You see something, you perceive it. Mm -hmm. And it's usually something that someone else does. We are looking at it from outside. And it can have so many aspects to it. You mentioned the mom uh, example. There is part which is biology. I mean, we know uh, rats. There's research. Rats mm-hmm. usually their fear. What's their fear response? Their response to danger: freeze or run away. Right? Mm-hmm. Freeze or fly. I'm
0: envisioning a rat like lifting a little tiny car, <laughs> <laughs> Hot Wheels. Yeah, that's
1: very cool. <laughs> but, but but when rats have pups, mm-hmm. the reaction becomes uh, aggression. Mm. They fight. Why? Because evolutionarily, if they leave, the pups are going to be eaten.
0: Okay, and that yeah. is not
1: what you want. Right. So we shift. That's one is the biology when we are parents, we are a lot more serious about our children. Mm-hmm. I've heard from a lot of my friends who became parents that you change. It feels like your biology, yeah. change, your brain changed. The other part is also the meaning of that, ex- that, uh, that experience, mm-hmm. right? And I will get to it, but uh, stepping back, what we see as a courageous activity from outside is very complicated because, for example, what, uh, let's say we see somebody was, uh, faced someone with a knife and they, or someone with a knife came to a group of people and one person jumped in and took the knife away from mm-hmm. them. We see this as courageous, yeah. right? It could be stupid. <laughs> Maybe that person underestimated the threat and overestimated their abilities, mm-hmm. but they got lucky. Or it could be that person ha- was a Navy SEAL They had a lot of skills there, Mm -hmm. and they were able, they knew that they are gonna handle that, so they had a very good sense of control. Uh, There might be a snake here, and I get terrified, but you know, because you have studied snakes, you know that snake is non-venomous, so the knowledge you have Mm -hmm. leads to an action that you take that from my side looks courageous. Yeah. Sometimes courage is as you mentioned there's a meaning to it to mm-hmm. the there's basically some bigger thing than us that we perceive that Allah forces us to do. I've had first responders I've dealt with this a lot with first responders that I worked with. I had this uh, police officer her partner got shot right, right next to her and the partner's on the ground bleeding and she sits there and puts her hand on her partner's neck stop the bleeding mm-hmm. while the gunman is coming towards them shooting. Yeah. And the question I asked her was, weren't you worried about your own life at that moment? Right. The answer was I was not thinking about it. All yeah. I was thinking about was helping my partner. So the meaning these have, right? Mm-hmm. And this it gets very complicated. For example, right now, a Russian soldier in the war, mm-hmm. how does courage, how is courage defined for them versus a Ukrainian soldier who mm-hmm. is there to protect their country and their family and their friends and their mm-hmm. kids? And then uh, sometimes the courage is basically choosing between two fears. Mm-hmm. This is like back to that soldier. They go ahead with the gun shooting and the other ones thinking that the Russian soldier, thinking that they are at risk. But there's a bigger fear if they don't do that, they right. will be punished back home. two evils. A lot of times that fear is and is not very concrete, it's mm-hmm. more abstract, it's imagined. It's, uh, uh, let's say, the society. What will my society think about me? Mm-hmm. What will the culture think uh, about me? Well, based on my religion, how's God gonna deal with this, uh, with my situation? So a lot mm-hmm. of actions that we take, which looks courageous, have so many different aspects. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a few that I mentioned here. Yeah. It's hard to know what's courage. Yeah. And it's because at the end of the day, but, but it, what we know for sure is courage is defined in the face of fear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, and the, there is no courageous person who doesn't experience fear. We mm-hmm. talked about if, if you cannot experience fear, you are, uh, there's a problem with the brain. Mm-hmm. So there is fear. And if there's no fear, there's no courage. Right. So they're very much linked with they each other. They
0: go hand in hand. Yeah. And I like how you brought up in psychology, they call it the biopsychosocial model where, you know, we have our biology and the instincts that you're mentioning and then the, the psychological or all of the, you know, interpersonal relationships or your thoughts about things like, oh, this is safe. And then you've got the social aspects that also play a role. And we like culture, religion, you mentioned, and all of these things kind of interact because humans are very hard to study and complicated beings. But I think that. That was a really interesting explanation. Um, I want to talk about trauma exposure, which is a huge part of your work, and you've already mentioned a lot of different types of potential traumas. So how does trauma affect this ability to, to process fear, or what, what does trauma do in terms of fear? hmm
1: and trauma is very common. We both work yeah. on, in this for uh, realm in an urban environment.
0: Yeah, maybe we should define trauma too and how you define it.
1: Absolutely, and I think it. Uh, thank you for reminding me, it's very important because these days, especially on TikTok and Instagram and everywhere, everybody's using this word so loosely, yeah. which is a disservice to those who have real trauma exposure, yeah. right? Because right. There are a lot of stressful situations people are perceiving it as traumatic. Uh, Well, I had this difficult conversation with my boss, and that was traumatic. No, it's not trauma. What we define as trauma is something that could be really threatening to someone's physical, sexual integrity. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are talking about situations like war, Mm -hmm. explosions, shooting, robbery. Assault, rape, mm-hmm. uh, serious motor vehicle accidents, serious illnesses, natural disasters, things that could be really threatening to my existence. Mm-hmm. That's trauma. I'm not saying that if I had a difficult breakup, it's not stressful. This mm-hmm. is important because sometimes people get offensive, uh, defensive that, yeah. oh no, you say this was not tough. Yeah, it was tough, but it's not it's defined not as trauma. Saying, yeah. It's stressful, highly stressful. And trauma could be directly experienced. Somebody shoot, shoots at me, or it mm-hmm. could be indirect exposure, especially mm-hmm. in, let's say, for responders, for online workers. You go to the aftermath of a shooting, and you have to do the cleanup, mm-hmm. or you see it happening to others. And mm-hmm. it could also be through detailed exposure repeatedly to the stories of it happening, especially for the loved ones. Mm-hmm. So what trauma is uh, does is that, it can lead to a lot of different reactions. One part is that, of course, we go on high alert, mm-hmm. right? You, the whole fear system wakes up and puts everything on the back burner, mm-hmm. everything else, because the attention is on sur- survival, right? Now, if there's a gunman in this parking lot, I'm not seeing any of these beautiful colors around here. I, my focus is strictly on where is the person. Right. Um, but it can touch people in different, at different levels and different ways, mm-hmm. and. Uh, let's say one, one common reaction we talk about is post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. or PTSD. It's important to mention, PTSD is not like an infection you either have or you don't have. Right. You and I, to have a common language in research, we use, let's say, from 0 to 100% impact trauma has on someone. We draw a line at 70, mm-hmm. and we say above it, we call it PTSD. Right. 69 or 68 still is impacted. Mm-hmm. That's why in the clinic, we more focus on the distress and dysfunction these symptoms are causing. Mm-hmm. rather than does the person meet all the symptoms or not. Sure. But overall, when we talk about PTSD, the person's mind and brain is in fight and flight mode, mm-hmm. constantly screaming for danger, But it, the prob- which is good. But the problem is it stays. It doesn't go away. It, right. at the, in, in the immediate vicinity of trauma, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to PTSD, it stays for years and years. I've had uh, cops who were in shootings, and eight, nine years later, for firefighters who had it, tragic and for most of them the most tragic part is when a child loses their life and for decade for a decade later they're feeling the fear they're feeling the anxiety the nightmares flashbacks all these symptoms come back to the person they are constantly on edge avoidant loft and don't even want to leave house because it's hard to screen for danger outside and then there's the cognitive aspect of it for a lot of people the meaning of world and life and themselves changes Mm -hmm. right survivor's guilt why did this happen to my partner and not myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, the feelings of being damaged, the feelings that I did something to deserve it. Because, right. and I think it's important, I will try to be brief about it. A lot of times we, we, want, we are creatures that want to make sense of the world mm-hmm. and the universe and the events. It's hard for us to accept something happens happening at random. Mm-hmm. So anytime, let's say the trauma happened to me, let's say I was assaulted or raped, i keep thinking about what why it happened to right. Me, right depending on the ideology and uh, world philosophy i have let's say i'm religious or I'm not religious i may have different theories about why it happened to me mm-hmm. a lot of times sadly those theories surround myself what did i do to mm-hmm. deserve this or this happened to me and a big part of treatment is talking to people that the, the bird was there when the cat was hungry looking for a poo, for food mm-hmm. and that's why it happened the bird didn't do anything wrong mm-hmm. And then there are other reactions into trauma, which could be, I mean, some people do not react with uh, PTSD per se, but there's high anxiety, there's Mm -hmm. depression, there's avoidances.
0: Mm-hmm. trauma can have so many different um, kind of awesome. outcomes like you said that was that was really interesting I think you painted a really nice picture of just the breadth of experiences and you also mentioned that PTSD doesn't happen to everybody and that most people you know most people have an experience have experienced a trauma at some point especially in Detroit which is the context of our work yeah. and a lot of people find possibly some benefit or some Um, aspects that make them more creative that they attribute to trauma. So can you kind of talk about the potential positive side of trauma for creativity or other things? Mm
1: -hmm. So as you said, sadly, exposure is too high. But also we got to see that we have evolved through much worse environments. Right. Like 500 years, ago, not too far ago. You and I had a very high chance of being killed or losing a limb in a war or an assault or fighting with the other group or the other nation or the other tribe. Mm-hmm. So we have, I believe, evolved to be very resilient mm-hmm. towards them. and That's why when we talk about trauma experiences, as you said, majority of people do not develop what we call PTSD.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a lot of people carry on the impact, whether negative or positive, and I'll get to the positive mm-hmm. aspect uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but trauma doesn't touch everybody in the same way. Mm-hmm. And the other part is the type of trauma also matters. We know that the more interpersonal, the more human-inflicted the trauma is because we are creatures of group-orientedness and we want to trust the others, the, uh, the impact is higher. Let's say survivors of torture, uh, the impact is much, much higher than, let's say, someone who went through a natural disaster or a severe more vehicle accident. The positive as- aspect of trauma a lot of times is the It basically, as I said earlier about fear, puts things in context. Like I've heard from a lot of first responders and veterans that the anxieties or challenges or worries or disagreements of day-to-day life do not impact them as much as they did before Mm -hmm. because they have seen how it is to lose your life or almost lose your life or what are the real threats of life. And then that also brings back to you basically redefining and revising your life. I mean, we all get wiser through difficult adverse experiences, right? Mm -hmm. A simple example, you're young and you are thinking about who's an ideal dating partner and you're thinking about how they should look and how they should have this and that thing and then 10 years later, your thinking is very different. You're like, oh, these are the things which matter in a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Not those things that I was thinking, what is that? Wisdom gained through experiences. A lot of times, this happens through difficult challenges and experiences and traumatic experiences. For example, I mean, loss does that the same, too. Uh, I lost my dad about five years ago, and one of the things that happened to me after that loss was remembering that I'm next one in line facing my own mortality because before that death was just this abstract concept happening to others now it hit home and now i'm the next mortal in the line in that line and that's made me start thinking about wait how do you want to spend the rest of your minutes yeah. and that changed a lot of my approaches right now when it comes to career work uh, research i don't care much about the number of publications i would say i would i don't care at all about the number of publications anymore anytime it's something that i think about doing i think what's the impact how is Mm -hmm. it gonna help someone make someone else happier or myself happier so trauma in that sense this was not trauma for me this was a loss but trauma Mm -hmm. can put things in perspective and make people revise and also sometimes remind them of what they were able to do yeah a lot of times we all have gone through it yeah we don't know how strong we are (laughs) until we get there and then you're like Wow! I can do this. Also, yeah. I can survive this. I can go through this and still be and and gives you. A, it's very empowering. It gives yeah. you a sense of control. Not that I'm recommending people should go seek trauma. <laughs> there are much easier ways to uh, grow. But yeah. yeah. And of course, you also have the opportunities of selflessness. Uh, be more human. Humane. humane. Yeah, a give lot back. of these people. Yeah. A lot of these people who have survived trauma. I mean, I, had, I was talking to this police officer, a very nice guy, and his reason he became a police officer was when he was young, he grew up in a rough neighborhood and mm-hmm. saw a lot of uh, unfairness, a lot of bullying, a lot of pain and suffering in others, and he was like, I'm going to try to stop that. Mm-hmm. So you can create a meaning out of trauma, and that meaning could be, oh, I'm a damaged person for the rest of my life, right. or no, I want to do this. I want to stop gun violence. I right. want to go start activism mm-hmm. for better gun laws because I lost a child Mm -hmm. to guns.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's kind of the silver lining. And I I too have been fortunate enough to hear people say that. And we've worked with um, young cancer survivors, Mm -hmm. so children and adolescents, and they say the same thing, that it showed them how strong they could be. You know, For them, they don't really know what's happening to them, but being in the hospital and going through that experience, a lot of them say it made them better. So I think it gets at that kind of post-traumatic growth, which Mm -hmm. is, I always think of the flip side of people. PTSD, mm-hmm. so PTSD with mm-hmm. the growth. Do you have any suggestions for like the growth aspects or how people can cultivate that? I think
1: one way we can overcome the negative impact of trauma is the meaning we create for mm-hmm. it and create for the experience. Other part, I can create the meaning or fall into a meaning that is sad these days happening too often to romanticize it. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is my identity for the rest of my life and now I'm a right. broken person. Or it could be now, well, this happened to me for the reasons I didn't do anything to mm-hmm. uh, about, and now I'm going to turn it to this other thing. And mm-hmm. a lot of my work in the clinic is on that aspect with the patient. So the first thing is that you did not do anything wrong mm-hmm. to deserve this. We all have done wrong things. You could have done wrong thing in that relationship, but none of the wrong things you did, Made you deserving of being beaten up, or assaulted, right. right, or raped, and that's the first. That is the first step of liberating people from the impact of trauma. Mm-hmm. This is not my problem. Mm-hmm. This is my problem, but this is not my. This is not the re. I'm not the reason for this, and right. this is not me. This doesn't define me, and now I want to build a life around it and kick it out of my life. Mm-hmm. So then the other part is knowing that. PTSD again I'm repeating is not my new identity mm-hmm. we can I, I uh, had a first responder who was uh, doing an interview uh, for a documentary about trauma this tra- documentary was focused on uh, trauma in refugees and I said if we want Americans to connect with this concept which is happening in Africa better let's talk also to uh, a trauma expert who's talking about let's say trauma in the children in Detroit mm-hmm. or first responders who was traumatized and this person was treated by me. He said something during that interview that was I didn't remember, but was very cool. He said, I'd seen, I talked to other people and other providers who told me, Well, you're you have PTSD, this is your thing, and you have to live with it for yourself, your life. When mm-hmm. I talked to this doctor at the after at the end of that initial interview, he smiled and he said, We'll fix it. Mm-hmm. At that time, quote, I felt my feet, I stood up and I fought and I fixed it. End quote. So <clears throat> the perception that we can change it. We can fix it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of hope.
0: Yeah, and there's not something wrong with you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: No, that's fantastic. Arash, we need to have you on for like a five-hour episode. This is fantastic. I do want to give you an opportunity to uh, tell listeners about what resources you would recommend. If you're dealing with PTSD, you have a loved one, or just trauma, um, what would you recommend for folks?
1: Absolutely. And, uh <clears throat> One of the challenges people we have usually, whether it's anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder or depression is, is it too bad to the point that I need to seek help, right? Mm -hmm. Is it normal, is it abnormal? A lot of times people feel, well, I've gone through a lot and this is a normal thing not to be able to sleep or have to drink so much or have nightmares. No, it's not normal. Mm -hmm. The best compass and guideline is what uh, we have uh, in every psychiatric diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Significant dysfunction and distress. Mm -hmm. If whatever is, whether I had a traumatic experience or I am feeling anxious or I have challenges and stressors in life, if it is too distressing, Mm -hmm. that needs attention. Mm -hmm. If it is causing dysfunction... I cannot go out, I cannot academically function well, I cannot do my career job well, I cannot do my social life uh, the proper way, that also needs attention. So when these are there, either of these are there, you know you need help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our healthcare system is a little bit difficult to navigate, right? So uh, there are things you can do in your own life and there are things that you can seek help with. Of course, the things you can do in life is lifestyle. Of course, if you if I wake up in the morning and... Uh, eat garbage drive-through food and sit at a desk I hate and lay on the couch and listen to Fox and CNN telling me the whole world is going down in flames and then uh, while eating garbage food on the couch, well, nothing is gonna make me uh, happier. So the focus on social life and uh, having a meaningful life Mm -hmm. and exercise, I cannot emphasize how important exercise Mm is. But then there's the healthcare system, how to navigate. For those who have a primary care doctor, that's the best starting point. You Mm -hmm. talk to your primary care doctor, they can do some screening, they can do the referrals if needed. Some people have access to psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. They can go to a psychiatrist and they can go also reach out to a therapist. Both can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Meaning that they do the screening, And if the better option is therapy, Sorry, that happens if the better option is medication. That happens if a a combo is a good thing. That happens, and here I want to emphasize that the medications we use for these conditions are not addictive. They're not going to change the person you are. They're not going to change the thinking you have, and they're not going to zombify you. And we have so many of them. If we have side effects, we can change them because that's one of the things that scares people, right? right? And of course, you don't have to take it if you don't want to, right? Mm -hmm. I don't. I can't force anyone to take the pills at Mm -hmm. home. Uh, And then uh, there is a so. And, and for some people, uh, if they have insurance, they can even call their insurance and say, I have this condition. Who is mm-hmm. an expert? And they can tell you who in your area mm-hmm. is an expert. You can reach out. And those who don't have any resources, there are community mental health services. Mm-hmm. You can reach out and uh, they can help you. And they have a variety of services from psychiatric to therapy to case management. So there is help out there. Mm-hmm and we can fix this, there's a lot we can do.
0: That's fantastic. I always recommend Psychology Today's website for find a therapist tool in your area who takes Mm -hmm. your insurance. Fantastic resources. We will link to some of that in the bio of the podcast.
1: Actually, another resource there is also Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Mm -hmm. They have a list of people specializing in anxiety and trauma. That's perfect,
0: thank you so much. We will link to that. Um, So listeners, if you have anything that's helped you or a loved one with anxiety or fear or trauma, please uh, put it in the comments We want to hear from you. Uh, Lastly, if you've read Arash's book, um, please leave a positive Amazon review if you found it helpful. Um, If you have not yet read uh, Dr. Javenbach's book, Afraid, I highly recommend you pick it up at Amazon or anywhere else you can find this lovely book. Um, Additionally, we are giving away a free signed copy uh, courtesy of Dr. Javenbach. So stay tuned to our social media to hear more about that. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. And thanks for the very important work you're doing.
0: That wraps up another episode of the Brainstem Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share this with friends and family. And be sure to follow us on social media at Brainstem Podcast.